Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation is about This Little Red Thing, the latest anthology from Sweatshop, the Western Sydney Writers Collective. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. We record on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, and I want to acknowledge the traditional custodians and their ongoing connection to the land. Their stories are the original stories, and I pay my respects to them. Final Draft explores the best of Australia's books, writing, and literary culture as featured on 2SER. Now, the Great Conversations podcast is your chance to hear more of these discussions. Now, joining me to discuss this little red thing are two of the book's editors, Winnie Dunn and Stephen Pham. Winnie is a Tongan Australian writer from Mount Druid, as well as the general manager of Sweatshop. And Stephen is a Vietnamese Australian writer from Campbelltown. He's also a member of Sweatshop, and his essays and fiction have appeared in The Lifted Brow, as well as Overland and Mianjin. This Little Red Thing is a collection of short works of fiction, microfiction, and poetry. It brings together nearly 50 authors and incorporates a range of ideas, perspectives, and vignettes of life in Western Sydney and across the world. Join me as we discover this little red thing. My name is Andrew Popel, and I we've got a really special panel about to happen. Uh, there is a fantastic new publication from Sweatshop, the Western Sydney Writers Collective. If you're any sort of listener to Final Draft, you will have met someone from Sweatshop already. And uh, we're going to be talking today about this little red thing. Joining me to discuss it are book editors Winnie Dunn and Stephen Pham. Now, you have heard from Winnie on Final Draft as recently as when she was in discussing the Boundless Festival. Winnie is a Tongan Australian writer from Mount Druitt. She's the general manager of Sweatshop and, uh, and she's one of the editors on this little red thing. Welcome, Winnie. Thank you for coming in. Thank you for having me. It is great to have you here. Now, we're also joined by Stephen Pham. Stephen is a Vietnamese-Australian writer from Cabramatta. He's also a member of Sweatshop. His essays and fiction have appeared in places like The Lifted Brow, Griffith Review and Mianjin. And Stephen's also got a book deal and his debut, Vietnamatta, will be coming out sometime in the 2020s. Stephen, sometime in the 2020s, maybe? Yeah. Something to look hey. forward to. I was, I was reading some pieces that have already come out online in different publications, and I think it's something to look forward to. To already, I hope so. Mm. But uh, enough about that. That we've got to talk about this little red thing. Now, this little red thing is a collection of short works of fiction, microfiction, and poetry. It brings together nearly fifty authors and incorporates a range of ideas, perspectives, and vignettes of life in Western Sydney and across the world. I was hoping we could start with the inception of the project. How did it all come about? What was the idea behind this little red thing? I think the idea is that Sweatshop had had numerous publications that were quite large so that were full of either poetry or very long pieces of prose and so that's from the conception of the Blick Vaccine chapter one and two and then Sweatshop Women and so the idea of kind of this little red thing is that we wanted kind of short punchy pieces uh, from our writers in our collective but also kind of young writers from the area who English might not be there first language and so we wanted to kind of test the boundaries of their writing skills by kind of them getting by kind of getting them to write like a three sentence story and to really focus on what a story is what images pop up in a story and have them really concentrated and and so I think the kind of punchiness and the colors that come out of this little red thing are really exciting yeah we discussed this off air and 
it's this incredibly accomplished piece that I didn't really realize was was uh, had so many high school contributors until I carefully went through the thank yous and saw saw that some of them were directed at um, high school teachers and the like. It's an amazing group of work. What what were your first thoughts when these works were emerging, Steve? What did you think when you started reading these works? Sure. Well, I guess like uh, for context, me and Winnie. Um, held these workshops with uh, in, in high schools across Western Sydney, um, Lanier Intensive English Centre and also uh, Sir Joseph Banks High School is what I did with Winnie. Um, and so we were there for the sort of conception of these sort of works. And I guess for me, it was just, it was just fun. It was, it was really fun to just like come in every week have a new sort of stimulus instead of working on an extended piece and just come in and just like talk and then sort of like write pieces that were developed from those conversations and then just to repeat that every week for about five weeks yeah five to ten weeks yeah five to ten weeks I think you know kind of working with the high school kids you know and this is not the teacher's fault it's just kind of the constraints of kind of our education system is that teachers just kind of have to teach them what's on the syllabus Mm. and so that often means that they have to kind of write from a refugee perspective or they have to kind of uh, write a story about a book that they read which is often by kind of this old dead white guy like Shakespeare right and so to come in and and work with these kids and tell them that they can write their own story and tell them that they can practically write what they did yesterday down the road at the shops uh, is really empowering for them because they get to use their own voice to tell a narrative that isn't printed in Australian literature. Yeah, how did the kids respond? What was their what was their sort of immediate reaction when you said you can write in your voice, you can write what you want? I guess for me it was hmm, okay, so like it wasn't just us going in and being like, "Hey, believe in yourself. You you can you too can be a writer." It was for me, uh, like my workshops, for example, I had a group of students at Lanier and I came in, I prepared some sort of notes and stimulus um, just in terms of like thinking about like a theme or like an idea or a metaphor and unpacking that with the children. For example, uh, there is a, there are some stories that like mentioned chicken because mm. I came in and I was like, what does, what, what do a lot of people like or have thoughts on? And I thought maybe chicken. So at home I prepared, you know, a sort of like brainstorm of like what could chicken mean metaphorically as in like, you know, the bird, or if you wanted to talk about like other birds, that's fine too. And you know, like KFC, you know, like chicken that you can eat or like the idea of like uh, cowardice, things like that. And so I discussed that with the children with the high school students, sorry. And, you know, like, one particular story is, like, by Lazar Tadic. It's called uh, This Thing. And it, uh, do you mind if I read it out? Oh, please, yeah. Is that okay? Yeah, That's cool. absolutely fine. And it goes, I was in the Anytime Fitness in Campbelltown walking through the door. Then I saw a camera focusing on me. I quickly took off my shirt and started flexing around and saying, muscle, muscle, muscle the chicken guy joined me and start dancing. And like, while we were sort of working through that, it was so clear that he just wanted to be silly and funny and 
that the students around him really appreciated that. Like they were just like, they were just having fun. Mm -hmm. And I was encouraging that because it's just like, I, th I really think that for me, it was not about empowering necessarily, but mm -hmm. it's about like literature doesn't have to be this high and mighty thing. It doesn't have to be this struggle. It can just be, I think it should be silly. I think it should be a circus. I think it should be incorporated in our everyday lives because we always tell stories and things like that. Like, you know, like at lunchtime to entertain, to like make sense of things. And I think that I really believe in that sort of like radical, like democratization of capital L literature. Um, and I think the students responded really well to that. Yeah. That was a really great example that you read for us there, Stephen. But I thought, can we take a second just to unpack for some of the listeners what microfiction is? How does it work? What sort of stories does it work for? How do you guys use it in your own writing? So microfiction is, is a form that's often about kind of uh, it kind of sits in the genre of kind of like flash fiction or, or vignette style where you focus on a certain image and then you build upon that image to make a story. And so often when we're working, even with writers um, in our own collective, we often ask them, what is a story? And some people kind of struggle with that question because they think of a story, like Stephen said, as this kind of high and mighty elusive thing where, you know, I often get responses they're like oh it's a conversation and something happens and I'm like no 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 but what is the technical structure of a story and people often get stumped and so when I tell them that it's simply just a beginning a middle and an end they're often like oh yeah like I learned that in kindergarten but it's about kind of building the writer's basics and so microfiction is really and vignettes and flash fiction is really good for that because often you can write a story in three sentences like the first sentence is the beginning the middle sentence is the middle and the third sentence is the end and it's quite easy for high school students to grasp because they're they're often confused as well about what a story is um, and they often don't know what voice to use and how to speak about themselves. And so to be able to just give them a simple task of being like, write three sentences, write about what you did yesterday, and then and then we'll move on from there. And so that genre is of microfiction is building upon an image, like Stephen said about the chicken, and making it into a story. Can I really, like, can I just add on to that and be like, for us, it's also like about being pragmatic about what writing is. Mm -hmm being practical about it and not being romantic about it uh just having a very like this is exactly what it is like there's nothing more to it than that i mean there is more to it than that like literary techniques and like imagery and all of that but like just boiling it down to its very essence in a way that is actionable that is like literally write three sentences one is the start one is the middle and one is the end that's it you don't have to do anything else that's it like you already know how to do this you do it every day but just do it intentionally. And that's like, I guess, a way of reframing how these romantic notions of literature as like, you know, about the moon and the stars and like looking into nebulas or whatever, like that's, I don't know. I, I feel like there's um, this romanticization almost makes literature seem like inaccessible as if it was like innate to certain people over others or whatever and it's like no that's just like you know colonialism white supremacy patriarchy yeah that's a that's a power flex right that's mm -hmm. like so that's a, a group of people who have feel they have ownership wanting to take and, and control that ownership and yeah i like the i like the pragmatism that you just brought in there Stephen, because i i i was reading and i was inspired i thought i have i just have this idea i have this again an image as you mentioned winnie that i wanted to reflect 
and I realized that it only involved six or seven sentences and I would have probably overthought it any other week but because I was reading this little red thing I thought you know what I'm just gonna I'm just gonna bash that out on my phone Mm -hmm. and even if I never think about it again that image is still very real for me because I took the time rather than overthinking the the million and one ways it could be teased out (laughs) I noticed in quite a few of the stories the authors share distinct reminiscences that create this sort of juxtaposition between their Australian, their Western Sydney lives and the life that the, the individual author had lived somewhere else in the world. Maybe it was a home country, maybe it was a country that they were moving through. Can you talk to me about what the, this little red thing shows us about the reality of identity in Australia today? And especially, I guess, those ideas of, of trying to reconcile a dual identity or, or get used to Australia, which, I mean, especially if you look at media representations, has a very confused identity that wants to be very white, but very obviously isn't. Well, I can speak from kind of my own dual identities, like um, as a mixed race kind of Tongan Australian woman, you know, both of my parents are mixed race. And so people often assume that I have one white parent and one Tongan parent. But I feel like identities are really complex. And in the Australian reality, uh, identities are really complex and nuanced and people have multiple identities working at one time. Uh, You know, for example... um, I worked at my old high school. So, so I went to Richard Johnson Aglican School, which is like a Aglican private school that's just up the road. Like it's not like Sydney Girls Private or something, but it's but it's a private school in the sense that just this kind of little community in kind of Plumpton didn't want to go to Plumpton High School. So <laughs> so they so my parents thought the best thing to do was to put me into the private school, which they worked really hard to do. But at, Uh, And at Richard Johnson, and even now, especially having worked with the kids there, there's a lot of Polynesian kids who often either grew up in their homelands and Mm. kind of moved to Australia really young or was kind of born and raised in Australia their whole lives. But their families are so kind of Polynesian that they often feel like they're kind of either like Polynesian first and and Australian second uh, because they feel like the Polynesian culture is what drives them the most. Uh, And, you know, an African-American feminist, you know, we talked about this last time, um, scholar and and, uh, social activist kind of bell hooks Mm -hmm. talks about that concept of mirroring of of being able to see yourself reflected in in a figure. And, you know, she uses kind of Barack Obama as the example of kind of um, a mirroring situation where African-Americans got to see themselves in the president. And so when I rocked up into Richard Johnson, my old high school, and got to work with these kind of Pacifica kids, you know, they saw me as, you know, Pacifica too. And the first thing that kind of came to their mind when I asked them to write their story was, oh, nobody's interested. Like, mm. who wants to read that? Like, are you serious? Uh, and that's the response we, like, I usually get, especially when I'm working with um, writers from, from my own community. And so to be able to kind of sit them down and get them to write um, their own story is always really special to me. You know, I, I don't know how much of it is empowering kind of nationally because, you know, you had Michael McCormack, Uh, like this year kind of say that uh, Pacifica people are fruit pickers and that's all that we will ever be. And when kind of our islands sink in the ocean due to climate change, we'll just come to Australia and pick fruit. And and that's kind of how wider Australia sees us. But in that little moment of sitting there with the kids, 
with the Polynesian kids and kind of working through their story and having it printed um, is really special. Mm. Um, I want to take us just a little bit away from the collection, but I think it's really relevant um, uh, at the moment. So it's come out in the last few days. The government, in their wisdom, have decided to streamline their bureaucracy. Um, Amongst other things, this means they're going to be ditching the Federal Arts Department, merging it with transport and communication. Um, And I'm going to wear this joke out, but I'm all for reading a book on a train, but otherwise I just cannot see (laughs) how those two – I've already worn that joke out – it strikes me that whilst I think this is undoubtedly a regressive move that we can agree on, it's also going to have the possibility or the reality of disproportionately impacting marginalised communities who aren't represented as often in the mainstream culture. And if they do see themselves represented, they might see a very narrow representation. When you've just given us one of those representations, do you have any thoughts or, or maybe how many thoughts do you have on, on this move and what, what its impact is going to be? Mm. I'll have to actually think about this for a moment. That's absolutely okay, yeah. I think the way that I can talk about that kind of very kind of regressive, I would say kind of fascist move um, is essentially through kind of one four. So one four is like this all Pacific kind of drill rap crew from Mount Druitt in the area that I grew up in. And their kind of National Australia tour has been cancelled multiple times due to kind of some of the band members um, kind of jail time and, and sentencing and kind of links to like criminal activity. And I say that in a quote unquote kind of thing because it because so many Pacifica people s- struggle to move away like I said, from the identity mm. that's placed on them as, as either criminals um, or thugs or footballers or security guards. Um, so One Falls National Tour has been cancelled in Australia multiple times. They're in New Zealand currently and only kind of two members can be there because the others are restricted in their mm. travelling. But Australia also said on record that kind of right-wing white supremacist movements that kind of meet up at the beach and have politicians meet up with them on the beach um, can't be stopped. It just it mm. can't be stopped. Like, we're just going to let it happen and let it unfold and we can't do anything about it. But they can systemically stop a lot of marginalised people from telling their own story and that's kind mm. of what 1-4 is. They're kind of a rap group that tell their own story and have kind of millions of listeners um, every week. But for some reason they can be stopped and they can be pushed to the side, but kind of right-wing white supremacist groups can have the whole floor to Mm. do what they want. And, you know, that's what happens when you vote Liberal. I Mm. guess, like, as far as, like, defunding the arts goes, it's kind of... I guess it's kind of scary to think that, like, they're getting rid of sort of federal funding for the arts will mean that we're going to trust institutions, like sort of maybe private institutions Mm. to make up for that funding and to funnel their money towards causes they believe in. And because most of the institutions of Australia, which is itself, you know, a colonialist, white supremacist, patriarchal, capitalist sort of institution, like Mm. it it just doesn't seem that promising to, you know, believe in the free market and the invisible hand of like, you know, like it just seems like... I mean, it's obviously a very deliberate move to remove 
well, maybe to uh, make it more difficult for marginalized communities to access, you know, resources that are related to critical thinking and sort of um, resources that allow them to empower themselves or like help them aid them in empowering themselves and stuff. So like, yeah, it's 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 scary, but you know, and it's pretty like messed up. But I don't know, like. Even if one, like for in the example of one four, even if they don't tour, even if they are prevented by, you know, uh, the law from like touring and entering New Zealand and like doing whatever, like the their rise to prominence has been through the internet, you know, mm-hmm. and there's like a decentralization that means that we can reach, we can link up with other communities without going through sort of like governments or even like a physical landscape it's just i don't know i i, I really don't know what it means mm. i know i know it's bad but mm. i think that people who really want to tell their story or just can or who do feel empowered to like tell their story will find a way to do it and they always have been doing that I thought One Four was a really interesting example, and I, I wanted to come to them. So thank you for bringing them up. But I mean, as much as I know about them, um, they they've been very independent in their rise, and I would be very um, surprised if they'd had any sort of outside government arts body funding. So they're a really interesting example, as you're saying, Stephen, of what happens outside of a, a bureaucratic structure. I was also just really. Just the idea that we now have no body to, you know, verbalize a, a direction artistically and culturally for this country. And I mean, like, you look at the government in power and you wonder if you want them articulating that artistic vision, but we just don't. We, the arts has been folded into communication and transport, like somehow art is just another commodity that you either put on a train or gets transported via infrastructure. Everything's infrastructure and we're all just building to an infrastructure future uh, as opposed to art being something fundamental to who we are. Hmm. Mm. I mean, like, as much as, like, Sweatshop at the end of the day is about not just empowering in some sort of romantic notion of the, in some romantic sense of the word, like empowering, you know, people from marginalized backgrounds to sort of like navigate day-to-day life where really high cultural literacy is like required to avoid the sort of um, traps of like, you know, white supremacy and patriarchy and all that. Like, but in a very literal sense, we are about creating pathways for younger writers or people who don't even think of themselves as writers from Western Sydney communities to actually see writing as a viable option and for us providing like sort of like opportunities to further develop that career and you know um winnie's like like lightning fast ascension in the writing world is like the perfect example of that but at the same time you know like and like the the sort of uh funding changes will definitely impact how we how we can carry that out but i like it's my personal belief that like yeah art is fundamental to who Mm. we are and like art doesn't like just because you write doesn't mean you have to be an author Mm. just because you draw doesn't mean you have to be a you know an illustrator like and just because you sing doesn't mean like you're a singer like 
personally, like I sing in the shower because I just like singing in the shower. I, I don't want to make that a career choice. I don't want to make, I don't want to like think about like, oh, how do I get on Spotify? How do we get streams? It's like, I'm just singing because like, it's just something that I do. It's just, it's just an involuntary like reflex. Like I, this is like, I is how a lot of us just process stuff and like express ourselves. Mm. It doesn't have to go much further than that. So like, I don't know, like, if we it, take if we take away from that on a national level, we yeah. narrow the scope for people to actually think about art as a thing that is done. Yeah. Another great thing, like the thing that I saw in this little red thing that I wanted to come to on that is the way the book reflects and highlights the role of language in Australian society, which is so important about how we realise who we are, and especially in literature where I think what we're taught at school is there is a, a writing way and a, a writing voice. But in the book, you know, predominantly the authors are writing in English, but the book also contains languages, other languages spoken in Australia. There's slang, there's dialect, and then there's just sort of these casual uses of language that really stretch any definition. These are the voices that you hear on the streets of Australia, you know, to different extents, depending on where you live. Um, but we're not often hearing them as we read through our dominant, uh, you know, media or our culture. These are not the voices that are, you know, even being reflected in the background, say, necessarily of, of a, a drama as someone walks by. I, what does that mean, having these voices out there in this little red thing? I think it means an alternative to a kind of very racist country, I would say, where the kind of dominant language that we hear is kind of very English or very kind of outback Australian slang, mm. um, kind of colonial English, we're, we're very, I would say. We're, we're very proud on certain levels of having only one way of talking. And yeah. on, like, even from a neuro, uh, neurological development perspective, having more than one language is just like you're, you're a superhuman compared to a monolingual person. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. And and the thing about kind of Sweatshop's publications is always about reflecting the reality of Australia. You know, it's a reality that people say hectic, which is kind of the opening line of this little red thing. It's it's a Australian reality that people say gronks and methods and dickheads and sluts, which is hmm. the ending of this little red thing. Um, and that's kind of the purpose of kind of sweatshops publication is showing that Australian reality that's very much ignored and pushed to the side in terms of kind of like when you see neighbours, when you see home and away, when you see kind of who's our representation in parliament, mm. like that's, that's sweatshops alternative to all of that mm. is our publications, is that publication of Australia's reality. I think also like, maybe like tangentially related is this idea of like coming to voice mm. and you know uh, I guess like writers and emerging writers you know obsess over this idea of like how do I find my voice you know how did you find your voice how did you how can you help me find my voice and it's like you already have one you're using it to talk to me right now like mm. on a very literal level like the writing that we show that is in this little red thing is this process of unlearning what you know this romanticized notion of a writing voice is and getting students to literally write the voice that they use to navigate their day-to-day -day lives like this thing by Petra Papas one of the pieces it isn't just like standard English it's also like Western Sydney slang like you know talking about like fresh fades and bum bags and sort of like TNs and like 
all these sorts of images of like Western Sydney. But then there's also ideas like there's also words like HKs, which for me is like Asian in Western Sydney slang. And then there's uh, <laughs> there's a term that he uses at the end, uh, cum dumpster, which is uh, from the Internet, from uh, actually from white supremacists, uh, <laughs> misogynists on the Internet, um, spe- specifically 4chan, like. And so it's this rich, it's a, it's a mix. It's just a mix. It's just like, it's all these worlds like colliding, but not actually colliding. It's just like, we are the products of like different worlds and our voices are the products of that. Like, and we use those every day and we're just like sort of like capturing how amazing, not amazing, but just how normal that actually is. And it's, that that's probably the most troubling thing is that this to be exceptional in presenting something that is normal. Yeah. That's where you know there's a problem if you have to exceptionalize something that is normal, something that people should be paying attention to in their everyday life. I guess one final topic that I wanted to to draw us to in this conversation was about what is depicted. These are everyday reflections of, of high school kids and others about what happens in their life. And so there's violence in this little red thing. And this... Um, it also seems to be like we struggle to deal with violence in Australia. Um, we do have we have this tendency we're either going to other the perpetrators and make them something that can be demonised and put away, um, or we justify and valorise their actions because they're people that we we want to keep touch with. And I mean, I've said that in in slightly more academic language, and I re- could have just said people of colour marginalised communities will be put away and if you're white, you're, you're, your violence is going to be justified because, you know, you're part of the the background. Um, and the story of 1-4 has been a really interesting example of that. The They've had their sh- tour shut down by this idea that there's going to be violence at the gigs. They've never had violence at their gigs. But they deal with violence and they, they particularly highlight the idea that Violence happens in areas where the same privilege and opportunities are not afforded equally. What role does art and storytelling have in actually focusing in and depicting these things that we like to pretend don't happen, but we all understand do? Things like violence. Well, I think it's really important to understand that, first of all, that what 1-4 does as people of color is they're telling stories, right? And they're telling stories about violence uh, based in Mount Druid. But, you know, it's for me as a writer, as a, a literary critic, I read them as fiction. And I think there is a tendency to read stories by people of color um, and sort of like other marginalized groups to read their fiction as autobiography or as very thinly veiled autobiography whereas we afford the luxury of imagination and invention and creation to more dominant groups white men specifically to sort of see their fiction as fiction as purely the product of an amazing mind that's wandered around and you know astrally projected and all that like whereas for people of color, our stories can only come from our bodies, our lived experience that we can't imagine, you know? And so, like, I just want to, like, and I'm not saying that you've said this. I just think for one, four, I think it's more productive to think of their storytelling, mm. their sort of, the stories that they tell as, think of it as fiction, mm. as 
what as an image that they are deliberately intentionally putting out and crafting and like you know what does it mean to create this idea of like a dangerous lawless mount druid mm. like what what does that mean you know um like why are they doing that instead of thinking that instead of taking it literally yeah. at face value like and so as far as violence goes i think that one four are very deliberately using it to create an image of western sydney that is both both romantic but also like repulsive to gentrifies and gentrifier mm. wannabes you know um and people that actually take advantage of like actual gentrifiers who take advantage of these sort of like neglected areas and being like no stay out we don't want you here this is going to be mm. dangerous for you and as far as like talking about the violences that we don't see you know like the violences of gentrification you know because there's this idea that like oh all these areas all these areas that are about to be gentrified they're unsafe mm. you know they're dangerous but then once they are gentrified once more privileged demographics start taking over they become dangerous for the original inhabitants of mm. the original populations of that suburb or area like and so it's a question not only of the violences the the violence that people of color sort of like very deliberately exaggerate but also the violences of gentrification of sort of like hegemonic populations like how that's invisibilized romanticized mm. and even been like it's kind of like it's actually good mm. and it's not even thought of as violence it's just something else completely it's it's turning it's it's crocheting shit and putting on telegraph poles and being like this is culture it's like no culture was here culture has been here for like mm. so long so like, there's a vested interest in taking away the artistic label taking away the artistic merit of these pieces of work because then you can just make them a reality and reality reality has to be dealt with you know that's and that's what i think is you know the police are, are, are hanging a hat on violent lyrics are a reflection you're you're confessing to a crime here you're not reflecting uh, art mm. Yeah, on that note of violence, you know, I, I want to say, like, we can't talk about violence without talking about the first ever violence that was inflicted mm. on this country, which was to the Indigenous people of this land. You know, sovereignty was never ceded. And so Australia continues its colonisation and its violence, like why Australia continues its colonisation mm. and its violence every single day. And because of that, of course, people of colour are angry. Um, you have to... We have to understand that in in a in a society that kind of bell hooks cause white supremacist, imperialist, capitalist patriarchy. Anybody who's marginalised would be angry at that structure, mm. and so the kind of artistic representation of violence that we see kind of dotted here and there in this little red thing, and the artistic mm. interpretation of violence as we see in One Four's lyrics, um, are simply a kind of representation of a wound mm. that marginalized people have you know a wound from kind of colonization imperialism patriarchy white supremacy that makes us demonized you know one for have gone through those lived experiences mm. and they just want to talk about it you know they've gone on record to say 
they just want to talk about what they've gone through, but that they're not advocating for it. They're not mm. advocating for violence to take place. And like you said, violence hasn't taken place um, in their conscience. But, you know, you can compare it to like a kind of rap group like Hilltop Hoods, where a lot of their listeners are kind of very macho white guys who carry around the Australian flag, which is a symbol of violence. Uh, and any person of colour seeing a kind of group of white men carrying around the Australian flag, you know, knows that something's going wrong. You know, that's kind of reminiscent of what happened at the Cronulla riots, um, where these white men were holding up Australian flags and saying no more libs, you know. Mm. And and that violence is just seen as kind of this larrikin um, that, that Australia, this kind of myth of the larrikin that Australia, that white Australia has made up to kind of cover its violence. But when white people are uh, very genuinely angry and frustrated and want to show that in their writing, want to show that in their lyrics, want to show that in their art. Um, again, like Stephen said, it's deemed as kind of face value, like you're confessing to a crime mm. and we'll stop you. Um, we'll we'll, we'll demonise you and make you the violence that's in Australia rather than white Australia reflecting on itself and being like, hey, how will we violent? What have we done to mm. kind of make this culture? I think there might be something else at issue here, and I don't. I, I, I see the can of worms, and I don't want to open the can of worms, but I'm going to open the can of worms nice. here because I think there is there is also. Uh, I, I often come back to an issue of readership, mm. and it can be quite controversial to tell anyone how to read, mm-hmm. but I think it's a failing when we tend to read in a single way. And what we're also dealing with is a readership response here and mm. and often a dominant culture readership response to issues that they don't understand, they don't like, they feel threatened by is, is anger and discomfort. And when that is then rationalised, the anger and the discomfort has to, has to become action against the thing that has angered them. Mm. And so we see these sort of dominant culture responses and I, I think that's a failure of readership. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and I think conversations like this where we are able to actually delve into the art of a, a piece of work, have an opportunity to, to at least show someone a different way to read, a different way to approach something. Yeah. Um, you know, Ruby Hamad recently published a book called White Tears, Brown Scars, where she talks about the the demonising metaphor of kind of the, the angry brown woman or the angry mm. black woman. And she says that it's kind of more racist to tell somebody that they're racist than the actual racism itself that was enacted upon a person of colour. Don't tell a white person they're white. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, right? And so when when people like me or Stephen confront racism in our writing, confront racism in person kind of every day, and we get the response of, oh, I didn't mean it like that, was it? And, and then it just becomes about their feelings and about how they wanted to interpret their own words mm. rather than a self-reflection of, you know, oh, hey, like... Maybe I did say something really um, demonising and really controversial and I should reflect on mm. that. You know, and, and the kind of white tears aspect in Ruby Hamad's book is that white women often use their tears to make a situation about racism that could potentially be resolved just about their feelings and then it creates a kind of damsel narrative where suddenly everybody's flocking to start protecting the feelings of that white person and, and then the the brown woman or the black woman um, or the Arab guy or the Asian guy who was trying to confront that racism and resolve it is now being seen as the perpetrator. 
Um, and so definitely when we read stuff like this little red thing, when we read stuff like Ruby's book, like Michael Muhammad Ahmed's book, it is about readership. It is about white people confronting their whiteness, just as people of colour have to confront their um, their culture and their coloured coloredness. I say that in quotes all the time. Mm. Um, and yeah, uh, the readership has to change to allow that self-reflection. I think this might be a really good point as we we nod to the readers to um, to reintroduce the book. We are discussing this little red thing. I've immediately grabbed my copy. It's a beautiful book and you cannot miss it. Very slim, very red and... Um, it's very, five thousand words long, and it's going to make a great Christmas present. I was going to say it's like fifteen dollars. Very inexpensive. It's sweatshop.ws. It's you a know? it's a perfect um, non-denominational festive sock stuffer. Absolutely, <laughs> or end of year gifts. I do end of year gifts. End so of year like, gifts. Yeah, absolutely. I just think that's smart. Like that everybody should jump on the website www.sweatshop.ws, see our books, buy this little red thing, and yeah, I think it's really cost affordable. This Little Red Thing, I'm speaking with Winnie Dunn. I'm also speaking with Stephen Pham. They're both from Sweatshop who have produced This Little Red Thing. Thank you so much both for coming in to the studio. Thanks for speaking to us. Malo. That's it for this great conversation with Winnie Dunn and Stephen Pham about This Little Red Thing. This Little Red Thing is available now through Sweatshop and you can go to sweatshop.ws forward slash this little red thing. Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation at 2SER Studios in Sydney, Australia. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. To keep up with the latest in books, writing and literary culture, follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. We're at the handle uh, at Final Draft 2SER. And if you subscribe in your podcast app, it means a great new great conversation every week. My name is Andrew Popel. There's still plenty more reads before the end of the year. So tune in next week where I'm going to have more great conversations from Final Draft. Till then, happy reading.